Hello, I'm Adam Demuth. Welcome to episode 12 of the Precision Microcast. Today we're going to be talking about a new jig grinder from Hauser and more in-depth talk about surface grinding. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So today, like every week, we've got a really cool machine. And this is a household name machine. Hopefully you guys have heard of the brand Hauser, which is now managed by Hardinge or the Hardinge Group. And Hauser is very famous for making a lot of very, very accurate grinding and milling equipment, specifically jig grinders and jig borers. This machine that we're talking about today is called the Hauser 2000. And it's a very new machine. Uh, it got released, I believe, this year. Is that right, Adam? Uh, yeah, they started doing the marketing promo this year, but they've actually been producing it for almost two years now, and they have 26 units delivered worldwide. Uh-huh. Okay, and the marketing promo is a good entry into how I actually got familiarized with this machine. It was sort of middle of the night, and Adam sends me a YouTube link with something like maybe 40 minutes of runtime. I said, oh, this can wait. This can wait until the morning. And um, this was right when I had my uh, operation, and so I had plenty of time in the morning to go through 40 minutes of very Swiss, specifically like Swiss-German marketing. And um, the marketing is actually great. The video is fantastic, and I highly recommend you guys watch it, especially um, after listening to the podcast. But you'll see why I find it a little bit comical about how they made the video and all the rest after after watching it. Um, anyway... Uh, Let's kick it off, and uh, maybe we'll just dive into the specs of the machine. So run us through it, Adam. So this is kind of a departure from how Hauser would typically build a jig grinder. The smaller Hausers, like the H35 and down, traditionally have been a C-frame machine, uh, which was on par with more smaller offerings. And then the larger Hauser were a bridge with the head moving on the Y-axis of the bridge, and then the table would reciprocate and move. X underneath the bridge, uh, or a portal construction, if you will. And they've, they've used those two kinematic layouts for decades. And uh, so for this new machine, they they kind of came up with something a little new, and that is a bridge-type layout, but only the Z-axis rides on the bridge, and then the table is a, uh, a Y on top of X-style table. Or, I'm sorry, an X on top of Y. Which, interestingly, is um, the same kinematic layout of the Mori. And so, for them to depart from a a well-proven kinematic layout like that told me they're really trying to do something new with this in terms of accuracy. And that was the driving force behind this new machine frame, is they had specific requests to tighten up the accuracy. And the the old housers were no slouch accuracy-wise. But they want to be grinding and measuring under the 2 micron threshold consistently. Yeah, that's what definitely stood out to me. Um, It was a concerted and concentrated effort in taking the next step in accuracy, which is actually quite fascinating because usually when companies, machine tool builders, take that step, it's from the plus or minus 10 micron range to the plus or minus 5 or maybe even 2 micron range. Whereas House is really starting at the plus or minus 2 trying to chase that very last micron. Yeah, and I I was curious to see, they, they put a lot of effort into the frame design, 
Um, but they they stated they specifically wanted cast iron and were trying to avoid any use of composites or granites. Uh, their reasoning is they wanted a, a cohesive thermal mapping of the frame. They wanted it to all attack the same. Um, there's a lot of really accurate machine tools based on cast iron and then even more so based on granite and composites. So uh, I, I don't think it's a, a one or the other, but uh, it was interesting to hear that they wanted a, it all to be a uniform material. Um, and it kind of gave some insights into their design process. But uh, the the machine is actually hand-scraped box ways. I thought at that price point and that performance level, they might be going into hydrostatic, but uh, it's still hand-scraped, which... Uh, I think you can get the performance you need. Um, these aren't, you know, like a Speedio or a Robo Drill moving super fast all day long. So it should be long lasting and lots of performance there. And then the, the drive system is ball screw still. Yeah, it does seem like really gone to the final um, sort of destination of, of those traditional uh, guidance systems. It'd be very difficult to squeeze any more from a standard boxway design. But in saying that, boxways are still extremely accurate. All the V-series Makinos are on boxways, and it's no joke, you know. Um, having that averaging effect of the box um, and also the sort of the static rigidity is nothing to sneeze at. It's not as if hydrostatics are just a cure to get to the last micron. You can, you can make really bad hydrostatics as well, just as easily as a, as a bad boxway. What ultimately kind of impresses me about this is that they in this day and age decided to invest a lot of time and money into a new jig grinder uh you're starting to see a lot of very capable cnc mills that can do a little bit of jig grinding and uh so i was kind of curious as to what companies are sitting down and making the distinction we need a jig grinder that can maybe do a little bit of milling versus a mill that can do a little bit of jig grinding mm. and and what the those performance differences might be uh and the the thing i keep coming back to is a true jig grinder has a planetary spindle meaning a u-axis can offset the grinding spindle and without any table motion or any uh interpolation it can produce a round bore it's doing that within about a half micron to 0.3 micron cylindricity uh, i think is what they're advertising mm. so that's a pretty nice hole um but uh there there are a lot of cnc mills now that can interpolate submicron so i guess the cylindricity is you know your key goal so i i'm curious to see a mill that can jig grind when it stops going head to head with a true jig grinder when where where it can't compete i guess one thing that pops into mind is uh with large plate parts in the marketing material the maximum weight on the table is something like 100 and no even more 300 kilograms it's not the easiest thing to put that on to most vmcs and expect the same sort of accuracy and then when you compare it to some jig grinders or well rather mills that have jig grinding options in the last five or so years that sort of uh format is not too common making those plate parts for i'm assuming progressive stamping dies I mean, I could be corrected there, but that's what they show in their marketing material. Um, does seem to benefit. They said their chief driver was uh, uh, f food and beverage storing stamping. So that'd be like pop can dies or soup can dies. Um, and that's consistent 
like in my my exposure in the can tool industry, there's a lot of jig grinding and a lot of jig boring. I don't know. They they make a very important distinction when they say it can do a little hard milling. Uh, they they really stress just how little it should be doing. I believe the interface is HSK twenty five. Yeah. Um. So that's not a that's not a hugely rigid tool holder, as you know, but. Um, <laughs> They they do indicate that you could take some pretty light cuts and and help material removal along. Where I think it'd be very helpful, and where I've used hard milling on jig grinders is um, sometimes you have a counterbore you're grinding the depth on, and through heat treat the plate might warp, and then you'll have it ground flat, and so some of these counterbores might have a lot more stock in the bottom as a result of warping upwards and then getting ground flat. And so to uh, just be able to, on the machine, go in and hard mill that stock out, maybe 10 microns from finish, and then go in and, and grind that counterbore to size, I, I think that'd be pretty handy application. And then just even, you know, there's a lot of other hard milled features you could put on without having to transfer to a to a dedicated BMC for hard milling. Yeah. I think one reason why that, because in my experience, the HSK25 interface is good enough if you keep the tooling under four millimeters. Uh, or light profiling with ball end mills, it, it shines. So it's the high speed really you know, plays into your hand there. Uh, but I think with this specific machine, you have that U-axis, which is just another axis stacked on. And even though it's still very highly rigid, it's a hydrostatic axis well at least the z stroke is you're you've got another degree of freedom that you're trying to compensate for uh and you're not really using it when you're doing the grinding uh, rather than milling yeah one of the neat things about the u-axis on these newer generations of jig grinders is uh it could be timed to the z stroke and so you can actually grind tapers um and that's that's not something I've had to do a lot of on the moors. It's set like tramming a bridge port, and you can grind up to a uh, degree taper. But uh, they were grinding a pretty steep taper, and watching that U-axis swing in and out as it's rotating was pretty impressive how dynamic it is. Mm. Yeah, it was like 45-degree cones that they were using to generate those. But back to the machine frame, uh, they were surprisingly open with the design and choices and materials, um, they, they did a, a very impressive job of sharing everything that went into it. And one of the, the little stats they threw out is it takes one person two months to hand scrape. They only have one technician per machine. They don't like blending technicians, like having multiple people on it, which I think I, I see an appeal to that. I think it leaves a higher level of accountability, but, uh, yeah, two months of manual labor to scrape one of these in. And uh, that's a really, really long time, in my opinion, to build a machine. Um, that's probably why they've only delivered 26 in a year and a half. But uh, impressive yeah. that there are still companies doing that amount of work to a machine like this. Yeah, two months of hand scraping and then some schmuck crashes it and it's all uh, off and off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, one, one parallel that I drew with your machine was that the axes are driven at the center of gravity. Yeah, they definitely put a lot of emphasis on that during the presentation. I, I don't know how hugely important it would be for like the the W and X axis, because I don't think this is a highly dynamic machine. 
you know, it's more or less just driving to a position and stopping. And usually that driven that center of gravity concepts applied to reduce vibrations and fast surfacing moves. But uh, I don't know, at the same time, if it if it's not a big penalty to add to your design, it certainly could help. But uh, uh, I, I do think it's important on the the Z axis that's stroking up and down. I think it has a lot to offer there. Yeah, and uh, one I'm not sure if it's actually a benefit, but uh, a consideration is that with most of these driven at center of gravity systems, you have two sets of scales. Like on your Mori, you have two z-axis scales. Yes. And when you go through the interferometry process to map out the errors on each of these scales, you are technically uh, somehow averaging the errors between the two scales. It's probably more of a semantic thing, and you're just, I guess, blending that last decimal a little bit uh, in your positional accuracy. But uh, I wonder if it has any lasting effects. Uh, It may, because the stated accuracy is really, really impressive. Um, They are saying that it's 1.5 micron on all of the axes. That's X and Y, but W as well, and uh, as well as the Z stroke. So it's... I think at this stage, every little thing counts for them, and that could be one of the things that gives them a little edge. Well, they're mentioning that a lot of their customers are requesting in-machine measurement, but the tolerance threshold that they're trying to push Hauser into, Hauser's not even confident that the machine can measure to that level because your your probe has a certain amount of uncertainty. How the probe's mounted in the spindle, uh, you know, it doesn't come in perfectly every time there you know there, there is some error there uh in any table of uncertainty uh and so all of a sudden measuring a plus or minus micron tolerance is not as sure as you could hope it to be in a machine like this and uh so so it seems like there is a, a very legitimate wall for how accurate these things can come, become well especially with the size I find this with um, the Pyramid Nano is that temperature just plays a massive, massive role because you have so much mass. Um, with a machine like your Mori, you know, if you experience a one degree shift in your ambient temperature or the machine frame, it, it can throw you out, but it throws you out far less than if the whole Pyramid Nano grew by one degree. Like thermal management becomes actually the most important thing about the machine design. And what I do like about this housing is that they put the spindle right in the center of the machine. And so any thermal influence is, uh, I guess, mirrored or translated equally around the frame. When I was running SIPs for a living, they're in their own concentric room. And uh, one day the HVAC went haywire and it actually turned heat on in the middle of the summer. And it got up to like 74 degrees over the weekend before somebody noticed. And I had to run bridge ports and do like odd jobs for about half the week before they came back down to ambient temperature. Wow. Like just, you know, getting 74 down to 68 on 15 tons of steel took quite a while. Yeah. If you're interested to see the state of the art in jig grinding, we'll have a video posted. I also found it interesting, Moore's nanotech division has introduced within the last year to a new jig grinder as well and theirs i think definitely is a little more in the high tech it's using linear motors it's um hydrostatic it has an air 
air spindle for the planetary spindle. Um, so I think they leaned into technology a little bit more than Hauser, but I, I'm not sure how commercially successful either will be. I mean, they'll definitely have their key clients, but uh, I don't don't expect to see one of these in every shop the way you did uh, with the G18 jig grinders. So last week we talked about grinding. I pretended to be an apprentice. I didn't have to pretend very hard, but uh, Adam taught me how to grind. And it's not really true because we did no grinding in the episode, um, but it was a great information dump. And uh, from that episode, we mentioned that we might have a spin-off segment or maybe a follow-up. And uh, we've collected quite a few talking points, uh, some questions from you guys, but also some things that we just wanted to touch up on and maybe ask a few questions about. Uh, so, Adam, we might start with some questions that we've received from our listeners. And the first question or set of questions comes from Tom underscore Machinist. And he asks, what makes a good grinder? What are the different ways... What are the different feed mechanisms? What recommendations, brand or model for general application on grinding? Okay. So the number one problem with grinding is usually harmonics. So good grinders are built to combat that. That means more frame weight. And also, what are the ways doing? Are they... Are they helping excite vibrations or are they helping dampen vibrations? So traditionally, hydrodynamic ways, they have a little better dampening property, whereas a ball V or a ball way will maybe doesn't excite it, but it doesn't uh, doesn't combat it either. But that mm. being said, uh, I, I think you can get some pretty good finishes anymore with some of the ball V configurations I've seen. And then what are the different feed mechanisms? So that's probably pertaining to the x-axis. So the very early surface grinders were rack and pinning a lot of the times, and that can be pretty disastrous. Um, the, the rack can actually kind of lift sometimes, and so that's something I would avoid if you're looking at a used grinder is a rack and pinnon machine. Um, in automatics, you you can see hydraulic a lot. I think people who have used hydraulic surface grinders have spent some time doing repairs and maintenance on those systems. So if you just want something for <laughs> light duty use, uh, I would probably recommend just avoiding hand or hydraulic and sticking with a hand crank system. And uh, of the hand crank systems, I think a cable band or Cable rope, wire rope, pool system is uh, pretty pretty bulletproof, and uh, offers a, a good a uh, good operating and sense of it doesn't have any backlash generally. So, as for whether you want a a oil V and flat or ball way, that's kind of up to you. The ball ways do crank a lot smoother. I have seen. It's sometimes a little more difficult to get a wheel that doesn't want to behave to give a good finish on a ball way uh, if you're trying to avoid balancing. Now, once you balance that wheel, that problem goes away. Um, but a V and a flat, mm. I can kind of move a little quicker with in terms of avoiding balancing every single wheel. One more thing that um, was sort of raised maybe six months ago, or oh, even longer, maybe a year ago, when uh, when I was looking at surface grinders, um, 
was a potential negative for a home gamer looking at a ball um, ball weight machine uh, in regards to transport. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was looking at this Blom surface grinder that was located about 1,500 kilometers away from me and I was uh, pretty excited about getting it. It was a reasonably cheap machine, but Adam mentioned that... Uh, or you mentioned rather that putting it on a truck and shipping it 1,500 Ks might be the last thing that that grinder does. Um, you can seriously Brunel the ways um, as it bounces over all the potholes in desert Australia. And um, that's not great, especially if you're trying to creep on nicer finishes and uh, more accurate uh, parts. Yeah, a lot of uh, grinders that built ball weight machines, they would actually lift the table off the saddle so there's no weight on the balls when they shipped them. And that, and they would spec air ride. I, you know, maybe that's just me being paranoid, but uh, that that is, you know, in theory, you could peen the ways, I guess, um, is my concern. Mm. Um, now, as for what a, a good brand for general grinding... I don't really want to throw too much opinion out there because I don't want somebody who has a brand that I don't mention to get offended. But, um, you know, if you're buying used, I would say really just buy on condition. Um, see what's available in your your area. And um, I, I will say this, the Herrigs have a continuous lube supply to the elevation rails. And so they tend to wear well, in my opinion. They don't see as much wear same age as another brand of grinder. Um, but yeah, I would, uh, I would just buy on condition. Surface grinders are, are pretty simple machines, really. There isn't a lot of voodoo and science behind them. They, you know, V and flat is pretty common. And, uh, so whoever has of the used machines you're looking at, whoever has the, the most intact way surface is the one I would buy. Just on the feed mechanisms, your new Parker has a tape drive. Correct. That's very similar to, uh, the belt or cable drives is it any different to them uh no now on mine i can actually change out uh how the tape interfaces to the table um standard is rubber mounts but i can go to a a hard delrin if uh if i want it to be a little less cushioning at the end of stroke and i want higher dynamic reverse rates Mm. um so it kind of depends on what I'm doing with it as to where I'd use those or not. Oh, that's cool. So is that something you can do on your own machine? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like a three-minute job. Oh, wow. All right. Uh, Stefan, he asked, or uh, uh, how do you say his last name? Gottswinter? Gottswinter. Gottswinter, I think, maybe? Uh, yeah, sorry about that, Stefan. I just always see uh, GTWR. Um, he, uh, he asked, talk about some of the fixtures we use and uh, cylindrical fixtures. Uh, so I thought I'd kind of break it down into some of the stuff I use a lot. Um, first up would be my Toolmaker's Cube. I highly recommend making or acquiring one of these. Um, it doesn't have to have any set dimensions. Uh, kind of fit it to the size of work you do. But um, it should probably be, I don't know, two times as long as the work you do, two times as tall, at least, but uh, it's just a, a block with tapped holes on several sides. You have some accessories with it, one of which would be a rib on the back side. The others would be, we call them pins, but they're, they're just clamps with a screw with a dog point, and um, it's on an angle, like a 10-degree angle. 
and it pushes that part up against the rib and down and that's how you can hold stuff square relatively easy and being as your your toolmaker's cube is square you can then flip that around and uh, it's just an extremely versatile hunk of metal because you have tapped holes on all sides. You can you could add all kinds mm. of work stops or extra hold down straps. And I've done so many weird jobs over the years with it. I use it a lot in the mills. And um, and then the next thing is V blocks. Sometimes I'll attach V blocks to it. I need like let's say it's a gear with shafts on either end. And I need to hold the shafts, but the gear is bigger than the shafts, so it needs it needs V-block mm. supports on each end. Well, I can mount all those to the toolmaker's cube. But, uh, you know, V-blocks, uh, a nice matched pair of blocks is always handy for, like I just mentioned. And then the other thing is what I call multi-V-block, which is a large monolithic block that has half a dozen, say, Vs carved into it. And that allows you to hold several pins at once if you're maybe putting like a... Uh, a chamfer on the end of the pin or something or, or a groove down the middle it allows you to gang them up and uh, process them all at once so those are handy i've got a fascination with uh spin fixtures flat spins uh grinding between centers uh seeing a lot of work that gets done on those is it it looks aesthetically like it produces fantastic results and that's interesting for me for some of the watchmaking aesthetic finishes but also they seem to produce extremely accurate parts. What's out there and what do you like? Well, this is where it gets really expensive. And it's also where I would say most average shops aren't going to want to go through the time of making them, making it themselves. Um, so, uh, but as far as spin fixtures, uh, the we've talked about the Imperial Newbold brand. Um Mm-hmm. That's always nice. If you buy a Herman Schmidt, it is at the time a relabeled Imperial Newbold on some of their lines. They have a, a CNC integrated control spin fixture, which I believe is their own. But uh, the the more basic ones are the Imperial. Um, and then there's Herrig. And then um, trying to think of a German brand that Stefan clued me into. That's escaping me now. Uh... But uh, they, they all kind of look the same. They all have a three-inch over the bottom height and so the the standard configuration is usually a sliding v block for centering up your work uh and that that works well enough Mm -hmm. um one thing i would personally like to get is herman schmidt sells a small three jaw chuck that works on a very different principle than most three jaws Mm. it um it almost opens and closes like an iris and uh i've seen those attached to spin fixtures and it just looks Hugely beneficial for quick setups on rounds. That's the one that uh, opens and closes with louvers and clamps with like dowel pins almost. Yeah, it has um, it really kind of a smart solution. They they have uh, carbide jaw stops brazed in, and they're just rounds. Mm. But because of the nature of the way it opens, it opens and closes kind of radially. Those jaw stop pins grab on a different location for different diameters so it kind of spreads mm-hmm. the wear out it's not a contact point point. and then for flat spins again imperial or herman schmidt offers one after that it gets a little tricky the company that manufactures the optidress has a flat spin but i mean it's like a eight thousand dollar item wow it's, it has a built-in sign table so it's it's pretty easy to to set up and if you're doing 
cones. But uh, like I said, the, the cylindrical work holding for surface grinders gets very expensive very quickly. Mm. Uh, and then if you're if you're in the flat spin territory, you can you can always really bust out the checkbook and go with a uh, professional instrument company <laughs> hair bearing. Um, but for general purpose work, that's probably not advisable as those have some very serious error requirements and storage requirements. Well, yeah, they're designed to be set up and then run uh, with very little downtime. Yes, yeah, it's not something you pull off the shelf, use, and then put back. And then, then lastly, we have what we call like a center set or a center bed, which is just uh, uh, two centers and then an electric motor, which you can uh, tie into your, your drive dog on your part and rotate your part on the centers. Uh, and grinding mm. on centers is deadly accurate, uh, extremely repeatable too. It's very easy to, to, to hit astonishingly tight tolerances for cylindricity and run out on centers mm, why is that hmm. well you're taking a lot of the mechanical elements and run out of bearings out of the equation and this requires good centers um, it's not uncommon to see people lap or grind their centers but ultimately it's a kinematic mount for for putting your part into the machine it is very little st stress and distortion in holding it and now you do need to lubricate that center with center grease but um if you're looking for a use set, Herrick, Herrick make the electric centers, mm -hmm. but a, a bench setter or a bench center set is, you you could approach that. That is something you could make since it doesn't have any bearing elements in the important parts. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be too bad to make, in my opinion. And the way I've seen them used before, uh, you don't necessarily have to make the whole assembly inc incredibly accurate. Um, rather adjustable and if you have uh, flexures that can help you tram the height of each center and also the location of each center and you can uh, more or less dial in the run out onto the part uh not necessarily run out um how level the part is to the ways mm -hmm. of the machine yeah. i guess is how much taper yeah. you're cutting into the part is what yeah, those yeah, flexures yeah. are usually used for. But uh, yeah, if you have run out on a center, it usually means something's wrong with your your center hole. Um, mm -hmm. And I've had to recut them before. And you can you can grind them. I've done that on a jig grinder, which is annoying. Um, and sometimes you could just use a carbide center and throw them in a lathe and recut them real quick, and that works out okay. Mm. And then lap them. But um, yeah, the the quality of the center is very important to the quality of the work you get. But but still, uh, it's an old timey way of doing things. But I don't think we'll see centers go anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> so our next question comes from Bren Ph, and it's about dry versus grinding with coolant. And he asks, is one better in certain applications? Well, coolant is always going to be better uh, in terms of lubricating the cut, removing swarf, reducing temperature. Now, in most tool room size grinders, ideal application of coolant isn't happening. You're, you're essentially mm -hmm. wetting the part. Uh, for coolant to really work, you need to break the air barrier that the wheel causes by simply rotating in the air. And you usually do that by matching coolant velocity and wheel velocity with a lot of pressure and a lot of flow. And so an unenclosed machine, it simply just makes too much of a mess to get ideal coolant flow. 
So you just, like I said, end up kind of wetting the part behind the wheel. And that helps temperature enormously in roughing. Um, but when I'm finished grinding, I don't see a ton of benefit to coolant because it slows me down so much. To get a part on and off the chuck with coolant is considerably longer time-wise than it would be if I'm dry grinding. And when I'm finished grinding, I don't really need lubricity and I don't need the scorf removal coolant offers. So if you're just going to be doing light dusting passes, maybe making your own fixtures here and there, uh, coolant may not get you much. Um, I kind of go back and forth if I were to buy the Parker again, if I were to get coolant. Mm. So... Uh, there are certainly times like when I'm roughing huge piles of D2 or yeah, coolant sweet, but, um, you know, some of the, the little fiddly A2 parts I do, I could just as easily do dry. Coolant solves one or two problems, but it, it brings with it a host of other problems. So keep that mm. in mind. We use, uh, oil in our shop exclusively. So every machine except for the, I guess, EDM, um, and now the grinder have, uh, oil. So that it wasn't unexpected, but it introduced some complications with how do you manage coolant. Now you have to check for concentration. And all these things, I guess, are fairly normal for a normal shop using water-soluble coolants. But um, for me, that did pose a problem. Not to mention that uh, the coolant system takes up a lot of space. And as I'm sure you've seen with your new Parker, it yes. eats up a lot of floor space that often doesn't exist. Well, my biggest complaint is how loud the coolant system is. Uh, um, yeah. You know, the Parker is whisper quiet. You don't hear the spindle running. Uh, and then you turn on the coolant and it sounds like a jet engine taking off. So, <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, it like you said, if you're an oil shop, like we both are, to add coolant back into the thing list of things you have to now manage and take care of, it is it is just one more thing. It's kind of annoying. But, mm. uh so yeah, I mean, um, just kind of assess how much grinding you plan on doing, and uh, you can do quite a bit dry. It's not ideal, but most coolant applying on tool room grinders isn't ideal either. So you, 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 mm. neither is perfect. And I guess there are other ways to remove heat from the cut. Um, you were showing me a way on, on I think Tuesday or Wednesday last week where you were grinding in a completely different way to create a really cool cutting condition. I can't remember that far back. What was I doing? Oh, <laughs> you were traversing the wheel. And uh, granted, not many machines can do this. It sort of uh, is a flex because you have a CNC machine. You were traversing the wheel um, diagonally to uh, step over oh, much right, smaller right, amount. Right. Yeah, I was, um, I was messing around with chop grinding and then chop grinding on an angle. Um, Anytime you, you go from taking like a really wide swipe, like you would reciprocal grinding, to just kind of like a point contact on the corner, it's going to reduce that heat drastically. Um, and with seeded gels, you can really run that corner a lot harder than you could a conventional wheel. Mm. And so you don't give up as much time as you would have in the past. And so I was playing around with that. And it, it is a very, very cool cutting technique. Um but like you said, it's kind of a CNC thing. But, uh, you know, <laughs> something we used to do a lot superb if we had like a lot of um, D2 we were hand grinding. Uh, you just keep like an aluminum heat sink. Go see the IT guy asking if he's got any, you know, 
computers lying around uh, he's torn apart <laughs> and uh just keep an aluminum heat sink and you know do your rough pass and pop that sucker on go get a coffee and three minutes later it's you know pretty cool so and then you can apply uh i guess it is coolant but manually applying it with wax or with uh just a little bit of oil directly on the part as you're grinding yeah um, um that that does more for certain materials than it does others. It works really well on like gummy materials as a lubricant to keep the the mm. material from loading the wheel, um, and it also works really well on super aggressive like CPM tool steels. Uh, mm. And in that case, it's acting as a coolant. Um, once it gets hot enough to melt the wax, the wax runs out of the wheel and leaves a residue on the part, lubricating the mm. cut, keeping it a little cooler. But then wax wants to be naturally solid so it pulls a lot of heat out of the part mm. and it's returned to its solid form so so when you're using wax what is your ideal wax that you use is there a special grinding wax or can you use a candle i do use a special grinding wax um it's tapmatic edge lube and it's actually for cutoff wheels hmm. like that's where we would use it a lot is on shellac cutoff wheels but uh works great on wheels but, um, you know, talking around, any old wax will do, really. It's it's not so much the special formulation. Um, I think it's just, you know, the the melting effect of the wax and the lubricity it adds. Mm. So, yeah, give wax a shot. <clears throat> so, as we've just been talking about wheels uh, a little bit, uh, Spencer Webb asks, what are the applications of aluminum oxide versus silicon carbide wheels? This is a good question. Um, so silicon carbide are the green wheels. And traditionally, it is your wheel of choice for soft materials, uh, cast irons, aluminums, red metals. and uh, But then it also takes a jump, and you can grind lightly a little bit of carbide with it. And there's a big asterisk by it. I wouldn't recommend anybody bother grinding carbide with silicon carbide wheel. Just go get a diamond wheel. Um, but technically they can do it and then aluminum oxides are, are generally more your your steel wheels uh now the the key difference is silicon carbide since it's with the exception of carbide built to tackle softer materials has a very very sharp grain and you can you can tell as soon as you cut a soft metal with a regular wheel you're doing a lot of rubbing and the wheel's showing that as it loads up. There's a lot of heat where when you cut with the silicon carbide, you can take like, you know, just a few microns off, but you see dust coming off the wheel. Mm. It is actually making swarf in these soft metals, whereas other wheels won't. So it does a very, very good job of cutting based on how sharp the grains are. Uh, the trade-off is those grains are very tall and slender compared to like a boulder-like shape of an aluminum mm. oxide grain. So when you do try to cut a harder material with them, they just snap right off and the wheel breaks down very quickly. And then also is spacing. I think the the, the bond they use in silicon carbide is it keeps the grain spaced out a little wider, which helps to keep gummy materials from loading. Yeah, in my experience, I've used a lot of silicon carbide for titanium and that works really, really well. Um, the titanium really uh, reacts quite well especially when you have an A-B comparison between aluminum oxide. And, and we actually tried 
using diamond um, and that did not go well at all um, which was not really a surprise but uh, the silicon it's really just like the openness of the wheel um, it's really a non-technical term but it it doesn't gum up and it doesn't need very much dressing between between uh, passes but uh, yeah, if you're interested in the silicon carbide wheel, Norton usually sells them under the 39C number. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's worth having one around. Um, so yeah, I recommend them. And then lastly, um, these are just some some thoughts you and I have compiled on super abrasives. You had some questions and mm-hmm. I had some things. Uh, no one specifically asked all of these questions, but, you know, over the years of people fielding me questions, I get asked a lot whether or not they should be using CBN. Mm. And, you know, I kind of wanted to lay my thoughts out there on it. It's a, it's a really effective way to grind, but it all kind of comes down to if your grinder can handle it. To do CBN right, you, you need to consider a couple things. One, the wheels are much heavier and Will your grinder spindle be stiff enough to handle any vibrations that can arrive from having a heavier wheel that is also running almost twice as fast? Mm. So you need to look at that. Uh, Two, the cutting forces are much higher. So if the elevation waves on your grinder are pretty sloppy and now all of a sudden your cutting force is several magnitudes higher, is that going to cause some deflection? And... um, so keep that in mind. Uh, now, two things you can combat, do to combat both of those issues are you can run a smaller diameter wheel. You can get away from a steel core or a metal core wheel and go to phenolic resin or carbon fiber. Now get the wheel weight down. And then you can also run a narrower wheel. So for you know most stock removal, half inch wide or 12 millimeters wide is pretty common. Uh, if you have a low rigidity grinder, maybe go down to a quarter or a six millimeter. But then, then does your grinder run fast enough? Uh, a lot of 3,600 RPM fixed RPM grinders aren't going to successfully run a seven inch CBN wheel mm. in terms of speed. And then we get into the coolant requirements. They definitely need coolant. And like I was saying earlier, you have to pierce the air barrier. You have to have a lot of coolant high pressure flooding in on the wheel at the tangent point where the wheel meets the material. And that coolant, so for traditional reciprocal grinding, a lot of people will recommend a full synthetic coolant. Hmm. And that's what I use. works great for aluminum oxide wheels. Um, But for CBN to really take advantage of it, you need some lubricity and you should probably be running full uh, oil coolant or neat oil Mm. and have to deal with the mist extraction on that now you meet all those requirements yeah you can run cbn as it's meant to be run and you will see huge benefits in cycle time reduction edge retention uh, how sharp of a corner you can grind in on a slot It, it, it just does everything so well intervals between dressing but uh uh most Tool room size grinders simply don't meet those requirements. Now, that being said, I still think a CBN wheel is worth having around. Uh, I like them for picking out corners. If I need a very tight cornered slot, I'll use a CBN. Uh, they, they simply just hold up corner form better than an aluminum oxide. So you had some questions on 
dressing diamonds? Yeah, dressing diamond wheels as well as the CBN wheels, any sort of super abrasive. Um, maybe we'll start with the CBN wheels. How do you dress them and how do you balance them? Well, uh, kind of comes down to bond type. Um, if it's uh, electroplated, you're not dressing it. <laughs> um, so keep that in mind. Uh, if you're doing metal bond, um, depends on your application. Uh, I would indicate it in, and that's probably all I would do if I'm just roughing with it. I would get it as indicated in as best as I can, and then the the application of running it will knock off any high spots if I'm roughing. Mm-hmm. Um, metal bonds can be tricky to get a good dress on. Now, if it's resin bond, you have a lot of options. You have brake dress truers, you have molybdenum. Uh, some people will just dress them on a piece of low-carbon steel. That'll kind of rip the the material off. I find molybdenum rods or uh, 3M sells them as double diamonds. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find those to be like a nice merging of price point and performance and ease. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really easy way to dress super abrasives on a tool room grinder. So I, I tend to use those a lot. Yeah, you have a lot of options. Um, you're starting to see more vitrified CBN. Some grades can be dressed with a conventional diamond nib, hmm. but it's kind of right on the edge. Um, it's an extremely hard grade of uh, abrasive, and it is going to wear your nib down considerably. Um, most of the time, though, if you're into vitrified CBN, you're doing some pretty, pretty high-level production work. And you're going to have a rotary dresser, uh, not like a rotary brake dresser. This is uh, like Dr. Kayser would make where it has mm-hmm. diamond abrasive on the dressing disc. Mm-hmm. And that's how you're dressing your wheel. So, yeah, a lot of options. Something to keep in mind, though, when you're you're dressing a diamond wheel on a resin bond is you're not generally producing a dead flat surface. Uh, usually there's going to be some crowning on the ends. So let's say you have your double diamond or your molybdenum rod and you downfeed one thou or 25 microns and you traverse and you downfeed 25 microns and you traverse. Well, what's happening is like, let's say the first 20% of the wheel is wearing the bulk of that 25 microns off the molybdenum rod. And then by the time you get to the middle, it's not doing as much work. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so naturally you have however much your downfeed is as kind of a rounded off corner to the the start and the end of this wheel. Uh, And you can do things to combat that. And one of which is taper off your downfeed increment. So let's say you're doing 25 microns. So then do a 20 and then a 15 and a 10. And it's gradually causing the middle of that wheel to get worked as much as the outside. Mm. So that's one way you can avoid wheel taper. And then the other thing you could do is just lean into it. So say I'm grinding like an L-shaped part and I have to come down and put a sharp corner into that L. Mm-hmm. And then reciprocate grind that base of the L. What I'll probably do is dress to one side I'll start on the open side of the wheel and I'll dress towards the corner that's going to be in the corner of the L. Mm -hmm. And so that'll produce, instead of like a barrel shape on the bottom of my wheel, it'll produce kind of an angled cone instead. Mm. And so I have like a dovetail cutter almost Mm. going into that corner. 
and these are very small increments. We're talking like under five, 10 microns, mm-hmm. how out of shape your wheel is. But you do notice it in corners though. If you have a barrel shape on your wheel and you have like a really tight assembly, your corners might be grabbing a little tight because your wheel was, you know, a micron or two light on the corner. Mm-hmm. So if you're just doing flat reciprocal grinding, the nature of the, the reciprocation is it'll overlap enough in the middle. You'll never notice that wheel being out of flat. Yeah, keep that in mind when you're dressing your, your resin bonds. Uh, brake dress truers, some people think they can get them flatter. In my experience, it, it's about the same amount of problem. But yeah, tapering off your downfeed increment is a good way to combat that. Or just take advantage of the nature of it and dress one corner sharp and one corner rounded. Mm. Anything else on super abrasive? Yeah, I think that's it. And we've reached the end of this episode of Precision Microcast. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate your support, especially over the last two podcasts where we're talking about grinding a lot. Really interesting questions that we've received from you guys. And if you do want to chat about anything related to precision, hit either of us up on social media. We've got Adam underscore the underscore machinist and Nicholas Hacko Watch on Instagram. Stay tuned for the next episode and uh, we'll see you soon. Bye. Thank you.